Good morning. I'm sure our coffee supply this morning will be lower than usual. All of you are very tired looking, but it's going to be great. We're going to talk about missions. My name is Jared Lawson. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Let me pray for us, and then we will jump into this topic. Father, we love you. We pray uh, as we continue just through this semester that you would do uh, what we hope you would do, which is apply of theology of these different subjects to our hearts where we see how it actually does change our lives. And this morning with missions, uh, though uh, most of us probably will not leave McKinney to go preach the gospel where it is not heard, I pray that you would uh, center our hearts on this subject, that it would be uh, always flowing through our minds, whether we're sending or going, that we would have the same longing for the nations to know you. To, to bow the knee to King Jesus and you to receive the glory that you're worthy of. We pray that your spirit would do that in our hearts, Lord, today. We pray that in your son's name. Amen. Uh, so we are continuing through the semester of applied theology. We're going to talk about missions today. A little disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, I said this when we, we talked about prayer. Most uh, topics on prayer t- or teachings on prayer just typically turn into guilt sessions about how we don't pray enough. Uh, similarly, a lot of talks on missions are, are aimed at guilting you into leaving your comfortable American circumstances and going overseas and preaching the gospel to the nations that have never heard it, which is a good thing, but those are not, my motivation this morning is not guilt. Uh, quite simply, my heart for this hour, uh, like I just prayed, is that you would, whether you're sending or going, that your heart would rightly value missions, that you would see as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it means that you have a longing for others to be made disciples of Jesus Christ, that the gospel, that God sent his son to redeem a rebellious world, that he's paid for their sins, that he might bring them into his family, that, it, that is burning in your heart. And when you hear that people don't know the gospel, that would uh, create in you this longing that they would. Okay, so I'm much more after your hearts and seeing this subject rightly than getting you out of these seats to, to go move somewhere else and preach the gospel, although that's a, a good thing as well. So my heart is that we rightly see this subject of missions. And I thought we're going to talk about evangelism in a few weeks. So I want to clarify the difference between missions and evangelism, because sometimes those things, we'll see they overlap a little bit, but we'll explicitly talk about evangelism in two weeks. What's the difference between the two? Uh, evangelism is, is literally the act of you proclaiming the gospel to someone who doesn't know it so that they might be saved, that they might become a Christian, that they might come to know the living God, they might turn from their sins. It's the literal act of proclaiming the gospel. Missions is much more kind of large scale. It's, it's, it's the means to the end of evangelism, if you will. It's the sending so that you can evangelize. So for instance, in the book of Acts, Paul's missionary journeys, as we call them, Acts 13, really through chapter 18, Paul goes, he's sent from Antioch uh, to go all throughout Galatia. And when he gets to these different places in Acts 13, he evangelizes. So the mission is going. And when he gets there for the mission, he preaches the gospel. He evangelizes. You see that those, those two things? Evangelism kind of comes from mission. So we're going to talk about kind of the bigger idea this morning. And I, I just want to talk about three things. Uh, number one, the mission of our God, the mission of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that God is actually the one on mission. It's not man's idea. God's the one who's on mission. 
Number two, our joining the mission of God. God's on mission, uh, on, on, he's omniscient as well. He's on mission. We join that mission. And then number three, as we've kind of been doing, just practical ways. What are practical ways that we join the mission of God? So that's a little overview of what we're going to do this morning. So number one, the mission of the Father, Son, and Spirit. One of the most important things, or the most important thing for you to understand with this subject is that God is the one who is on mission. This is not man's idea. This is not our way of kind of spreading our tribe that more people think like us or whatever. This is God's idea. God is the one who is on mission. I have several verses there. We're not going to read those. Those are just for your reference. Let's look at these. So right after the fall, seconds after the fall, as sin enters into the world, fractures God's perfect creation, death is now reigning over God's perfect creation. In Genesis 3.15, God immediately launches out on this mission to redeem this now broken world. We see that, a promise that a savior will come from the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. God is the one who launches out on this mission, who starts this mission. God is the one who calls Abraham. Abraham's just wandering around with his family, worshiping the moon from the land of Ur. And God is the one who goes to him and says, you leave your family, come to this land that I'm giving to you. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Notice that's not Abraham's idea. That's not man saying, oh, how can we do all these awesome things? That is God launching out on the mission. God is the one who rescues Israel from Egypt, goes, uh, sends Moses, sends the 10 plagues, delivers them, destroys the most powerful army in the world, brings them to, the, to Mount Sinai. He's rescued them, redeemed them, and now he's saying, I'm going to make you my people. That's God's initiative. God is the one on mission. And then all throughout the prophets, we see over and over again how it's God that's going to write his law on the hearts of his people. People keep rebelling. The problem is the heart. No one seeks God. No, not one. And so is man just going to improve to where he can finally save himself? No, God is the one who's going to take away the heart of stone, transform their hearts, give them his very spirit, write his law on their hearts. God is the one who's going to bring salvation to the Gentiles, those outside the nation of Israel. God's going to bring them in over and over and over and over again. We see it's God that is going to bring those in who don't know him. And the fascinating thing about our triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, is that each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, play a role in this mission. We see a beautiful summary in Galatians 4, 4 through 7 there. I'll read it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his sons. The Father sends the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that you no longer, or that you are no longer, or so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you see that God's sending the son to redeem, God's sending the spirit to transform, to make us adopted children so that we can cry, Abba, Father. We no longer look at God just as our God, as our ruler, but now as our Father, because the Spirit has been sent and indwells our hearts. So let's, let's look at this a little bit more in detail because I really want you to see this. The Father, Son, and Spirit each play this, playing a role in this mission of God. The Father, we particularly see, orchestrates the mission and sends the Son and the Spirit in the mission. Look at Ephesians 
one. See the Father orchestrating this mission of redemption. This is Paul's prayer at the beginning of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world so that we, uh, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of his will to the, promise of, or to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. So you see all, Paul constantly going back to the Father orchestrating this great plan of redemption that we might be, receive this inheritance as sons and daughters, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places orchestrated by the Father. And then we also see he sends the Son to redeem. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we also, so he sends his son to redeem Jesus in the incarnation. We'll look at that in a second. And then sends his spirit to transform, to sanctify, and to empower us to take the gospel to the nations. John 14, 16, this is Jesus talking, talking to his disciples, preparing them for him to go. Right? His mission of redemption is almost done. He's going to go to the cross, uh, be raised and ascend, and then the Spirit's going to come. So this is Jesus preparing them. I will ask the Father, and he will give, he will send you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So you see, the Father orchestrating, sending next the Son. This is what will be most familiar with. Jesus is sent by the Father in this mission to redeem. He's sent in the incarnation. God comes down. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. Uh, John 6, this is Jesus talking, gives us a, a picture of this kind of mission he's being sent on by the Father. For I have come down from heaven, it's coming down, Christmas, the incarnation. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you get both the picture of the Father sending there and then the Son coming down. What's my mission? The Son says to do his will, which is to redeem, to gather in all that the Father has given me. I'm not going to lose any of you, and I will raise you up. On the last day, eternal life in him, all who look to him and believe. So he comes down in the incarnation. He lives the perfect life. He's the perfect human. We just looked at that in 1 Corinthians 15. Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. He's the perfect Israel. He succeeds. Where Israel fails, he's the perfect temple, priest, king, prophet. He's the perfect sacrificial lamb. Doesn't need to be sacrificed every day. His sacrifice is perfect once and for all. We see that uh, he succeeds in his life where everyone else fail, failed. He goes to the cross, takes the punishment you and I deserve, takes the wrath that we deserve. So he defeats sin. In the mission of the Son, he goes and defeats sin. What are the three main enemies that rule over this world? Sin, death, the devil. He goes to the cross, defeats sin. What does he cry out on the cross? It is finished. He's taken the wrath. He's taken the punishment. Sin has been defeated. And now, by his wounds, you and I, we are healed. You and I can say now, Romans 8, there is 
No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of the condemnation hanging over our heads has been poured out. There's nothing left to be poured out on you or me because it has been poured out on the Son in our place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. He goes, he defeats sin. There's no more wrath for those in Christ Jesus. He's taken it all, but he doesn't stay dead. He raises from the dead, defeating death. There's the second enemy, right? Oh, death, where's your sting? We cry out. Again, we just saw that in 1 Corinthians 15. He raises from the dead, and then he ascends to uh, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Authority, perfect rule. He defeats the devil. The prince of darkness has no claim on him. What does he say right before the Great Commission? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So in the Son's mission, he comes and defeats sin, death, the devil. We get a really great summary of this in Ephesians 2. Paul gives it to us. 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the mission of the Son. The Father sends the Son to redeem. He is successful. He is victorious in his mission to defeat sin, death, and the devil. Scott Swain gives a great summary. God the Father sends God the Son to become incarnate as one of us, to redeem us, to rule over us as the firstborn son among many redeemed adopted siblings. That's the mission of the son. Then he ascends to the right hand of the father. And then we see the mission of the spirit, the spirit being sent primarily to do all the heart work. The spirit uh, is often, it's hard to see the work of the spirit in the scriptures primarily because one of the work, one of the primary things the spirit does is exalt the son. So oftentimes you'll hear, you know, we talk about Jesus a lot. I feel like the Holy Spirit is, you know, getting his feelings hurt. Uh, We don't talk about him enough. And the Spirit would say, and does say, that's my job. When you're talking about Jesus as much as you are, you're doing what I want you to do. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. One of the things the Spirit does is exalt Jesus, but he also does a lot of the heart-transforming work. Several verses here. The Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness. When you love your sin and you hear the gospel, and you're cut to the heart. We see that description all throughout the book of Acts. You're cut to the heart. You feel uh, guilty, convicted. That is the Spirit working on your heart. You turn towards him to repentance. That is the Spirit turning you to repent. The Spirit does the heart work. He's the one, again, that brings us, unites us to Christ that we might call out to God, Abba, Father. The Spirit sanctifies us. That's why it's called, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit indwells and is removing the heart of stone and pulling out all the pride and the sin and the idols in your heart that you might bear the fruit of the Spirit indwelling love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He does the heart work and also empowers us for the mission of God. Acts 1.8, right before Jesus ascends, says this, 
you will be you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Spirit also guides us into all truth, Jesus says in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and declare all the things that are to come. So the spirit does a lot of the heart work Uh, the transforming, when we go out, when we join the mission of God, as we're about to see, that's by the Spirit's power, and he's the one who does all the stuff anyway. Okay, it's not our awesome, you know, giftings that actually changes hearts, it's the Spirit that changes people's hearts. So that's the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, each playing a particular role in the mission of God. And the goal of God's mission is that he might be glorified, that those whom he has created and redeemed might praise him and that those whom he has redeemed and brought into his family might delight in him, that he would be glorified and that we might delight in him. Again, Scott Swain says this, in the mission of the Son and the Spirit, God makes his dwelling among us, brings the all-sufficiency, glory, and beatitude, the the supreme blessing of his tripersonal life, of his Trinitarian life to us, causing us to find our all-sufficiency, our glory, our beatitude, our ultimate blessing in him. God sending the Son and the Spirit is so, so that he might dwell in our midst, be amongst his people with all of his satisfying joy and loveliness, and that we in turn might find our satisfaction, our delight ultimately in him. That's the goal of God's mission. That's where we're headed And we see uh, at the end of the scriptures, this is not something that we we don't know how it's going to turn out. God will be victorious in his mission. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, or the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Revelation 21.1-5, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw a holy city new Jerusalem coming down of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice saying or from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new revelation written to a church that is in the midst of severe persecution who looks like there there's no there's no way there's victory we're being killed every day we're being persecuted every day and the author of revelation saying Here's what eternity promises. One day he will wipe away every tear, will make all things new, and gather his people in. The dwelling place of God will be with man. There will be victory at the end of this mission. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The nations will praise him one day. 
the 1040 window, the unreached peoples will one day not be unreached. One day the nations will declare that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. So your triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, is the one who is on mission. It's his mission. Okay, we need to see that rightly. So because of that, let all fear that this is somehow up to us die right now and let all fear of possible defeat of the possibility of not succeeding, die right now. God will be victorious in his mission. It's his mission. But secondly, we, as his redeemed people, as those brought into his family, as adopted sons and daughters, have the unthinkable privilege of joining that mission. As you become a Christian, as you become a follower of Christ, you join the mission of Christ, not because, so important for us to see, not because God needs us as if he were not all sufficient, but because he loves us, because it's the highest honor in the universe to join the mission of the king of the universe. We join his mission. Uh, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, the famous, here, here am I, send me, who will go for me, here am I, send me, uh, is often very, very misunderstood. We kind of picture Isaiah, you know, God saying, I have no missionaries, who will go for me? And Isaiah, beating his chest, says, I'll go, right? It's like someone signing up for World War II. I will go and I will defeat the great enemy. No, no, that's not what's happening here. Remember what's happened, what happens before God's great call, who will go for me? Isaiah is in the temple, he sees this vision, this earth-shattering, life-changing vision of the glory of God. And then God cries out, who shall I send who will go for me? And he cannot help but say, I will do whatever to serve this glorious living God. When you get a glimpse of the glory of God, you can do nothing else. You can fathom nothing greater than joining in his mission. Isaiah is not saying, I'm awesome enough. I guess I'll go do it because you need, you know, your Navy SEALs, your all-stars. Isaiah is saying, I will lay down my life for a God this glorious. I will do whatever it takes to make sure others know of your glory. So we join the mission of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We're commissioned by the Son. Matthew 28 Jesus came and said to them, this is right before he ascends to the Father, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, those who would follow me, those who would come and know me of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You want to follow Jesus? You're commissioned to go make disciples of Jesus, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded. And he hasn't left you alone. I am with you always to the end of the age. We're commissioned by the Son, and we're empowered by the Spirit. Again, Acts 1.8, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, as the Spirit empowers you for the mission. Notice, as we join the mission, even as we join God's mission, God is still doing everything. It's not like, okay, I did my part, now you do your part. God is still doing everything. Again, you're empowered by the Spirit. Don't go out and preach the gospel. He doesn't say, okay, go, and then I guess the Spirit will come along later and assist you. Wait, in Jerusalem, then the Spirit will come, then you will be my witnesses. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. Paul is constantly being guided by God. In Acts 16, he tries to go to Ephesus, and he says the Holy Spirit prevented us, so they tried to go north, and the Holy Spirit prevented us. 
And then he goes to sleep, and then he has this dream of someone from Macedonia saying, come and help us. And he goes and plants the church in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth later. So you see God guiding, God electing believers as Paul is evangelizing, declaring the gospel. We see this in Acts 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Again, God electing believers, the Spirit empowering them for this mission. And then again, it's the Spirit that has to change our heart. It's the Spirit that convicts, that turns people towards repentance, that takes away hearts of stone and gives them new living hearts of flesh that can bear the fruit of the Spirit. What did we just see again in Corinthians? What does Paul say? Talking about his ministry among them. I planted, Apollos watered. How did they actually grow? God gave the growth. God gave the increase. Paul sees it rightly. If you pay attention to what I will actually pray, like the content of my prayers before and after a sermon, all I'm doing is begging God to change our hearts. That's all I'm doing because I'm very aware the best I can do is like give you a guilt trip or give you a temporary motivational speech that will probably fade away by the end of lunch when you're watching the Cowboys lose or something like that, right? If the Spirit doesn't do something, we're just playing games. The Spirit is the one. God is still doing everything even as we join his mission. Only God can make a dead heart live. So he's the one still doing everything. And yet, so we join his mission, yet God, though he doesn't need us, in his infinite wisdom that is kind of unfathomable to us, has chosen, has orchestrated this mission that you and I would be necessary for it. He would use us in it. In the same way that God has kind of Though he's sovereign, has kind of woven our prayers to move him to action, he has woven his mission to be accomplished by you and I preaching the gospel to those who don't know it. Look at Romans 10, 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? There's missions. Unless they are sent, it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Though God doesn't need us, in his infinite wisdom, he has orchestrated this mission to be accomplished by you and I preaching the gospel. Again, what an unfathomable privilege you and I have been given in joining the mission of the king of the universe. What are our motivations in joining this mission? Number one, we'll see two primary motivations. God's glory. We preach the gospel that God might be worshipped and praised where he is not where people are worshiping and praising false idols, so-called gods that are not gods at all, where people are living for themselves and were created to worship their creator. We preach the gospel so that they might come to know him and praise him and glorify him because he is worthy of their praise and glory. Uh, There's an old missionary in the 20th century named uh, Paris Reedhead who uh, worked for the uh, SIM mission, Sudan Interior Missions. Actually, that mission organization was right next to where I went to seminary. They had a beautiful campus there. Uh, And he was a missionary in Sudan in the 20th century, right when liberal theology was kind of at its heyday. 
where the main thrust, at least in, in, popular, uh, in, the, in the popular realms of the churches, was to just improve on our lives now, your best life now, okay? Uh, and so, though he wasn't, you know, drinking in liberal theology, he was influenced by this. And so he talks about going to Africa, and one of the primary motivations was these people have had such bad lives you know, they're, they're suffering, and, you know, we all know that people across the world are just waiting to hear the gospel and just want to know how they can go to heaven, and all we need to know, do is go over there and so they can have a good life, right, in eternity, though they've had a bad life now, at least they can have one in eternity. And he goes over to Sudan, realizes that people aren't just waiting for him to tell them how to go to heaven, and he has this crisis where he realizes everything he had thought uh, uh, about just improving man's life in eternity had been for naught. And he wrote, or he says this in a sermon that was hugely impactful for me years ago called Ten Shekels in a Shirt, this crisis moment where he's wrestling with God about, uh, I thought I was coming here to tell people how to go to heaven. I thought that's what they wanted, and they don't. They love their sin, and they want to stay in it. And he was kind of done with this whole missionary thing. And he says this, I'll read this. Uh, this is again in, in this sermon. It was in that day, that, that day of crisis, in my bedroom with the door locked that I wrestled with God. For here I was coming to grips with the fact that the people I thought were ignorant and wanted to know how to go to heaven and were saying, someone come and teach us, actually didn't want to take time to talk with me or anybody else. They had no interest in the Bible, no interest in Christ, and they loved their sin and they wanted to continue in it. And I was at that place at that time where I thought the whole thing was a sham and a mockery and I had been sold a bill of goods. And I wanted to come home. And there alone in my bedroom, I faced God honestly with what my heart felt. And it seemed to me that I heard him say, yes, but will not the judge of all the earth do right? The heathens are lost and they're going to go to hell, not because they haven't heard the gospel. They're going to go to hell because they are sinners who love their sin and because they deserve hell. But I didn't send you out there for them. I didn't send you out there for their sake. And I heard as clearly as I'd ever heard, though it wasn't with physical voice, but it was the echo of truth of the ages finding its way into an open heart. I heard God say to my heart that day something like this, I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell, but I love them, and I endure the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. Do I not deserve the rewards of my suffering? Don't I deserve those for whom I died? And it reversed it all and changed it all and righted it all. And I was not there for the sake of the heathen, but I was there for the Savior who endured the agonies of hell for the heathen, who didn't deserve it, but he deserved them because he died for them. Let me summarize. Humanism says the end of all being is the happiness of man. Christianity says the end of all being, the purpose of all being, is the glory of God. So this moment of him realizing, I was there just to kind of improve on man's conditions in heaven. They, they had a bad life here. I want to give them a good life in heaven by just telling them the gospel and realizing our motivation isn't man's happiness. It is God's glory because he is worthy, because he deserves the rewards of his suffering. John Piper in his uh, very famous book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. 
Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Our motivation is that God would be praised, that the king of the universe would receive the glory that he is worthy of. That's our first and our second is that man would find his ultimate joy, his ultimate delight in God. Things that seem opposed. We'll look at a second that they're not. So first motivation, God's glory. Second, man's delight, man's uh, enjoyment of God. John Piper again in Let the Nations Be Glad. Love is helping people towards the greatest beauty, the highest value, the deepest satisfaction, the most lasting joy, the biggest reward, the most wonderful friendship, and the most overwhelming worship. Love is helping people towards God, who is all these things. Your motivation for missions, and we'll see this is also your motivation for evangelism, must be flowing out of a heart that has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you long for others to taste and see. You know the all-satisfying life of living for him and it breaks your heart that others would follow lesser things. You long for them to taste and see that the Lord is good. And God's glory and man's delight, we've talked about this before, are not opposed. They seem almost like what Paris Rita is talking about, God's glory or man's happiness. They seem opposed, but really we see these are two of the same thing. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is our ultimate goal in this life? The answer, man's chief end, why we were made, our ultimate goal is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. C.S. Lewis says this about that question. The Scotch Catechism said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy, or fully to enjoy, is to glorify in commanding us. In God commanding us to glorify him, he is inviting us to enjoy him. These are two sides of the same coin. These two motivations are really one motivation, when you delight in God, when he is your chief joy, your ultimate joy, you are glorifying him. So that's our motivation for joining the mission of God. And then lastly, what is, our, what is the means by which we join God's mission? How are we in this life to participate in God's mission? And the answer is not a popular one, suffering. Suffering for his name. Jesus, as he's calling disciples to himself, says this, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Jesus accomplishing his mission, he went through unthinkable suffering. And those who would come after him, those who would want to make his name great, will also follow the same road of suffering. Matthew 10, Jesus speaking, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Again, Matthew 10, brother will deliver up brother over to death and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. You want to make his name great in a world that hates him, in a world 
ruled by the prince of darkness, you will suffer. Yet, somehow, in the midst of all this suffering, there is this rejoicing in all of Jesus' followers. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you, notice that wording, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you like it's a gift. It's been granted to you that you would not only believe, but suffer for his name's sake. Acts 5, 41, the disciples right at the beginning of the church are preaching the gospel in the synagogue, in the temple. The Pharisees arrest them, beat them, say, don't preach the gospel anymore. And we have this verse. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, rejoicing that they were beat for the name of Jesus. Colossians 1, 24, this is Paul speaking. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. For this I toil and struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The disciples rejoice. Paul rejoices. Why? Quite simply because of the motivation. They are declaring the gospel of the king of the universe, that God is to be glorified, and they are watching as they declare this message, the church begin, the spirit changed lives, and man come to find life in him, leaving death to life. I think Paul would say to the Colossians, why do I rejoice in my suffering? I suffer, yes, but through that suffering, you have come to know the living God, the God of all beauty, the God of all love, you now know and will have life in him forever and will praise him and he will receive the glory that he is worthy of from you. I rejoice through suffering if that is the result. You can rejoice in suffering because, quite simply, of the incomparable glory on the other side of that suffering, of what comes through the suffering. Jim Elliot, who did give his life, he was killed for the sake of the gospel, has a very famous quote where he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, this life, to gain what he cannot lose. Or Paul in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Not compared and one is greater. They're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. One day, he will make all things new. The worst suffering will be undone. It will be made untrue. He will wipe away every tear and you will have eternity with him. Will you praise him for all eternity, enjoy him for all eternity? So the means by which we, God is the one on mission. We participate in his mission for his glory, for man's ultimate joy. And the means by which we do that is joyous, glorious suffering. So lastly, how do we actually practically get involved in the mission of God? How do we join this mission? There's a sense in which you brought into the church, you join, you're, you're joined with God's mission, but how do we keep it on our mind. I have six things here that are certainly not exhaustive, just things I thought of. You can think of more probably. Number one, how do you join the mission of God uh, practically? Number one, be kingdom-minded. 
Be kingdom-minded in the same way that you individually are one of billions of Christians who will glorify God for all of eternity. This church, the Parkway Church in McKinney, Texas, is a tiny, tiny piece of what God is doing all throughout the world. God is doing incredible things here. He's changing lives here. He's making disciples here. But we are a small, small part of what he is doing throughout the world. So be kingdom-minded. Broaden your eyes to what he's doing all over the world and pray to that end. So how do you, how do you actually do that? Some practical things that, again, I do uh, that you could do or you could do something else. Uh, one way to be kingdom-minded is to know and pray for other churches that preach the gospel, that are making disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, other churches that have the same mission that we do here, that we would uh, preserve the, one, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, that we would preach truth, preach the gospel, that uh, people who don't know Christ would come to know him and worship him and be adopted into the family of God. No other churches that are doing that exact same thing. Zoe Community Church in Allen, Christ Redeemer in McKinney, the Parks Church in McKinney, Lighthouse Church in Prosper, Faith Bible Church in McKinney, the City Church in Melissa, all like-minded churches on the same mission that we are. Just pray for them. When you're praying for the mission of the church, include them in your prayers. Pray for their pastors, that they would continue to faithfully preach the word, that people would get saved in their churches as well. Again, we're not about our kingdom here. We're about his kingdom, right? So example, Christ Redeemer, uh, again, one of those churches, just bought land north of McKinney. McKinney is going to double in the next 20 years. I'm sorry. Uh, if you're, if you're, you know, have lived here for longer than 20 years and you're just watching your cow town evaporate before your eyes. Uh, we're going to go from 200,000 to 400,000 by 2040. At least that's the predictions. Uh, 380, which is now kind of as far as McKinney has advanced, is going to be the middle of McKinney. And I live just north of that by the Costco. And north of us, Christ Redeemer just bought land. So as McKinney advances, there is going to be a church that preaches the gospel there waiting as people from all over the world move in. That is something to celebrate as if it was a church that we planted. We would be excited if we planted a church there, right? But if we're kingdom-minded, we should celebrate the growth of other churches and the witness of other churches just as much. I actually go out of my way when I drive home to drive by that land and I pray for it on my way home, just as a way to get my eyes off of, broaden my eyes from this little kingdom to his kingdom, what our eyes should be set on. So get to know and pray for other churches. Uh, something I did in seminary that was just random. Uh, there's tons of uh, organizations that have church finders online, like Acts 29 or Nine Marks. So I just, in seminary, when I was bored, not writing papers, or that's not true, when I was procrastinating, not writing papers, uh, I went on, you know, Acts 29, and I found a church in each country in Europe, and I emailed pastors and said, hey, I'm a random person in Texas that you will never meet. I would love to pray for your church. Can you send me some things to pray? And now, when I'm praying for the world, my prayers aren't just generically going to the world. I'm, they're going to a pastor. They're going to a church in Scotland, in Ireland, in France, laboring that the gospel would go forth there, and all of a sudden, my eyes are set on what God is doing other places. If your eyes aren't on the kingdom and they're just on Parkway, one, you'll always be discouraged because the need of the world is always going to outweigh what we can do here. And your view of God will just shrink. Again, God's doing incredible things here, but God's doing incredible things in countries whose names we can't pronounce. So big God, we are to be kingdom-minded. Think of the mission of God all over the world. Number two, 
Think about, real generic, you're like, wow, you're out of stuff by number two. Think about missions. Cool. It's real practical. Think about and study missions. This should just simply be an area that is flowing through your mind often. Again, this is what God is doing. It's God's mission. It's what we have joined. We join the mission of God. So study the scriptures. How, how, how does Paul go out on mission? When, when business-minded you know, uh, strategies and things flood into the church, we get some really bad missionary strategies, like numbers over faithfulness or conversions over disciples. Again, read Matthew 28. Jesus doesn't say, go make shallow converts and move on. Make disciples. Uh, the church has kind of been ravished over the last hundred years of people who just want to go preach. How many people did you get saved and then move on? Because it's all about numbers. Uh, there was a missionary from Costa Rica that came and spoke uh, at Gordon-Conwell when I was there. His parents, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, right out of seminary, they got married and they went to the jungles of Costa Rica where the gospel had never been preached. They learned the language. They lived amongst the people labored for 30 years witnessing and saw zero conversions their whole lives. They died seeing zero conversions. All of their support dried up. No churches supported them. Their son, who was born there, is still laboring there today. After his parents passed, they saw one conversion. They saw the entire village come to know Christ. They saw neighboring villages traveling to this village to hear what was happening. They're now translating the Bible for the first time in these languages. People are coming to get a copy of 1 John. People are coming to get copies of the scriptures. They're reading it aloud. They're praising God. And the gospel is moving for, or moving throughout the jungles of Costa Rica because a family was focused on faithfulness, not on numbers. And there are many who will now praise God for all of eternity because they knew what the Bible says about God's mission, not someone's business strategies. So study to know what the Bible says. You can spot false things. Uh, study to be informed on what's happening in the world. Uh, it, as Christianity dwindles in the West, we tend to freak out until if you study and see that Christianity is actually exploding in the majority world, in South America and uh, Africa and places like that. Study to realize that our world has now become globalized. Uh, one of the new mission strategies is called the diaspora missions, this idea that now the nations have come to us. Uh, 50 years ago, or when William Carey and Adoniram Judson wanted to take the gospel to India, from America and England to India, they had to get on a boat and sail there. When you want to take the gospel to the people of India, you got to go to Frisco, right? They're here, right? You just go across the street. All of you, now the nations have come to us. You don't need to leave your family to be a missionary to the other people groups of the world. So study to know what's kind of happening in our world and then study lastly to be inspired. Read missionary biographies, see men and women who have laid down their lives for the sake of the kingdom. Number three, pray. Jesus, Matthew 9, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Notice that, God who's sovereign over the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into the harvest. Pray to this end. Pray for the mission of God to go forth. How do you do that? I'll, again, I'll tell you what I do. I typically just work from Parkway out. 
I pray for us first, pray that God would make us more evangelistic, that he would just burden our hearts more and more and more to preach the gospel to our neighbors, to our coworkers, things like that, that God would see, we would see tons of people come to know the Lord who don't know him. And then I kind of work out from you know, our city, then our county, then our world. Uh, Operation World, which people used to read in a book, has an overview of every country, the kind of breakdown of uh, the different religions there and how you can pray. You can now just, I put the website there. They have a prayer calendar every day. You could get a list of a country and some bullet points of the biggest needs. Pray for the mission of God. Uh, And then in doing that, pray big prayers. Pray big prayers. I'm reading through Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know, going through the Bible reading plan. Uh, And one of the things I'm just so struck by is over and over and over again, what's Israel's complaint? The nations are too strong for us. They're going to wipe us out. They're too big. Uh, They're going to destroy us. They're way more powerful than us. Their cities are fortified. You know, we're just kind of wandering in the wilderness. We're hungry. We're eating this one manna thing. And how how are we going to defeat them? And they're right if God's not there. In Numbers, they do try to go take the land without God, and they're destroyed almost instantly. But if God is with them, how is it described? God will hand them over to you. It's like easy, there you go, go take the nations. The whole point is that Israel is weaker than all the other nations, but with God. This is easy. What's Caleb and Joshua say? Let's go right now. The Lord will easily deliver them over into our hands. So similarly with missions, with those things that look impossible, Don't be like Israel. Remember who your God is. When it seems impossible that we would plant dozens of churches and replant churches and send missionaries, that doesn't seem fathomable right now. Pray big prayers. Remember who your God is. William Carey says this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Again, remember who your God is as you pray and pray big prayers. Number four, send Two sides of the, the same coin, sending and going. People often think, if I'm not going, then I'm not involved in missions. <laughs> that is not true. Sending missions with your uh, care and encouragement of them and affirming giftings and, 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 and beholding this call that they're fulfilling and financially helping the mission of God. Sending is a key part of it. Going is obviously a key part of it. Some of you may be called to go overseas, but again, all of you can go across the street. Our world has become globalized. You now can just invite uh, 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 your neighbor over for dinner and you are reaching the nations who have flooded into Collin County that's growing kind of like no county in the world. So go, all of you can go, all of you are missionaries. God is, uh, God is uniquely, think about this, God has uniquely put you, there used to be a weird strategy of just like, all I have to do is get them to church and then the pastors will do all the work. That, that is the opposite of the picture of Ephesians. God has gave the church pastors to equip the saints, you, uh, for the work of ministry. God has uniquely put you in your job, in the parks that you're in, and equipped you with the Spirit as an ambassador of Christ. You are a missionary wherever you go. And he's got you in your space that I'm not in, that the people on your row aren't in, to reach the nations there. Okay, so you're all going, even if you're not selling your house and, and moving far away. And then number six, that may surprise us, be a faithful church. How do we get involved in the mission of God? Be a faithful church. Think about it. From Paul's perspective, McKinney, Texas is the ends of the earth. 
right? And in the same way that Philippi and Corinth and Thessalonica, all those churches, all the churches throughout Galatia are a part of Paul's uh, mission that are now preaching the gospel all around them, we are similarly a part of God's mission. Max Stiles says this, I have a solution for a globalized world. Again, the fact that our world has become globalized. What's the solution? It's called a healthy church. Biblical healthy church is the means of God to advance his glory among the nations. So six, six things. Uh, I wanted to end by reading a quick story, which I will do, uh, though I'm a slow reader, and then we will have times for questions. I heard this story years ago. Uh, if you've read Piper's book, let the nations be glad you know this story. It's a story of a, a, jo- a guy named Joseph who was a Maasai warrior in Africa. One day, Joseph, who was walking along these hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began to transform his life, and he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share the good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up in the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. And the men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire and dragged him from the village and left him to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a watering hole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found strength to, get, strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from the people he had known all of his life. He decided that he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might receive forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Once again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, he was dragged unconscious from the village and left to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he began to to speak to them of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Before passing out, the last thing he saw was that the women who who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health, and the entire village had come to Christ. Philippians 1.29 again, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Jesus Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that this is who you are, that we did not come up with the idea of, oh, what if everyone worshiped you, God? That is your initiative. You are the one who fulfills your mission. You're the one who, by your infinite wisdom, have brought us in to join in that, and what a high honor it is. Suffering can be fearful and can make us shrink back, but apparently you've promised this glory that 
causes us to rejoice in suffering, and I pray that that would be what's in our hearts. Surely there is not enough motivation that human beings can muster to suffer such things for you. That has to be done by your Spirit. And I pray that as we tremble, as we speak to an unbeliever of Christ, as we hold to the truth of Christ in a world that doesn't, we would have a divine uh, motivation within us, not created by us, but given by you that we might rejoice in suffering, that you might be glorified and that man might be satisfied, that might delight in you forever.